0: so far. The transplant episode puts the limits of sisterhood and family to the test when Blanche's sister Virginia comes for a visit and ends up asking for more than just a room to stay in. As someone whose only sibling is a brother, I don't always fully understand the dynamics of sister relationships. While waiting for her sister's arrival, Blanche is in a tizzy trying to not only clean the house, but overdo it with huge bouquets of flowers and cushion fluffing. Even with all that prep and excitement, she expresses how angry she is about Virginia, her sister, visiting because she hates her.
1: Alicia, uh, Coco here. Hi, Coco. Hi there. How are you? You look uh, you look wonderful today. Oh,
0: thank you. So do you.
1: Um, what's with the huge vase by the door? I am watching these kind of for the first time in 30 plus years. Uh, so I'm noticing things that- You
0: maybe didn't notice as a
1: kid. Yeah. And that, and that, and that you probably have stopped seeing because you've seen it so many That's times. That's a very good so point. So I think it's good to have me point things out like, why have a huge vase by the door
0: that vase actually plays a huge role in the episode The Break In, which Ooh. is coming up in just a few episodes. So we'll hear more about it, but it is Blanche's. It is expensive and it is huge. And it's funny because for how much she talks about it in the Break In episode, how much she loves it. While she's talking about Virginia and she's dusting and mm-hmm. doing all this, I was watching, and as she goes, her anger kind of takes over and she slapped it with her dust rag. Mm-hmm and it kind of made a little whip on it. So that was kind of funny for how huge and expensive and how much she loves it. So yes, that is the infamous Chinese vase. Do
1: you think Sophia would fit in it?
0: <gasps> what a great question. I that would only depend on the opening. I guess if it if the opening is as big as the lid, potentially we grease her up. <laughs> There's a possibility. Not yet. Blanche and Virginia's relationship has been strained since childhood, when Blanche first developed the feeling that Virginia had always taken what was rightfully Blanche's. And we also learned that Blanche is a middle child, which answers a lot of questions. Rose, meanwhile, cannot comprehend how someone could hate their own sister, but that is because she's from the Midwest. And these Southern sisters, well, we'll get into more of that later. A few times, Nancy Reagan's decorator is referenced as who Blanche wishes she had hired to do the house— that person is a man by the name of Ted Graber. He got his start working with antiques and windows before becoming more famous for his interior work. Then, hired by Nancy Reagan, he redecorated the family quarters of the White House in 1981. He went on to design President Reagan's office in Century City. From there, he did work in Palm Springs, an ambassador's home, the Bloomingdale's private residence, Jack Warner's apartments, and Joan Crawford's apartment in New York City. He was with his partner for 40 years before he passed at 80 years old. Rose suggests that perhaps their rivalry is a Southern thing, that it makes sense to hate your sister. Blanche responds with, a bit of an oh boy, saying that sleeping with your brother is Southern. While perusing certain websites that aren't suitable for the rating of this show, you may have noticed an uptick in, shall we say, family-themed genres. I looked up actual inbreeding statistics, but incest is not only difficult to trace, but it goes into much darker subjects. There are about 250,000 marriages in the U.S. that are considered inbred. This is usually to a first cousin, like Rudy Giuliani and Jerry Lee Lewis, for example, who both married their cousins. And surprisingly, I found a list that actually had Oregon and Washington near the top for inbred marriages. We do like to keep things weird out here, I suppose. Then I spiraled on the Blue family from eastern Kentucky. Basically, in the late 1800s, a man came from France, met a lady, they went off to the hills of Kentucky. They both happened to have a very rare recessive gene that, unbeknownst to them, would cause four of their seven children to have blue skin. And I'm talking blue like a body out of a frozen lake blue. The blue skin didn't go away with those four kids, and because they were so isolated, the family, well, kept it in the family, nephews marrying aunts and so forth, so they were known as the Blue Fugate family. As of now, it appears the inbreeding has subsided as there are no more blue people. So it's not so much that it's a southern thing that has sex with their brothers. It's that rural, isolated areas, including those in the Pacific Northwest and Midwest, all have these issues. But still, sick self-burn, Blanche.
1: Quick question. Yeah. Is it okay to sit in your daddy's lap until you're 16?
0: Yeah, wasn't that a Mm. telling there's yeah. there's a lot of, as the show goes on, interesting ways, especially for Blanche, that she handles family. They called their father Big Daddy, I'm or at least very, Blanche does. I'm
1: very concerned about that.
0: So it's Big Daddy. Yeah. And you know how I feel about anyone past the age of, like, 12 calling a dad, Daddy.
1: Yeah, unless it's for well those purposes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then to say that, so this the, the little sister came along, the baby of the family, and basically, the way Blanche says it, it's like she's hogging his lap. Yeah. She kind of says it with this little, like, there wasn't room for me. Yeah. Well, I think that shows, too, the kind of weird manipulation, if you will, yeah. of that family or that Southern idea in general mm-hmm. of, like, everything's very prim and proper. Yeah. Not saying all Southern people are like this, but just that Southern Belle idea of, that's my daddy, and I'm going to sit on his lap and say, daddy, I want a pony, that kind of thing. I call him
1: large father. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, it kind of speaks to how the the dad is daddy, and they kind of use him to get whatever they want by calling him daddy and sitting on his lap. It's like uh, kind of a no boy within itself. Yeah, so I mean, really, good catch. Thank you. Sophia enters the room, spraying it with Lysol for some reason, and shares Blanche's feelings about disliking sisters, which we'll get into when her sister visits in another episode. Dorothy comes in the front door and is carrying a log? Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's supposed to be a baby. While there are other episodes where they do much better with having real babies, this one goes full-on American Sniper. And I know you remember that film, Coco.
1: Absolutely. I, I did not see the film, but I know that I've seen that scene Where he is um, uh, rocking that baby. Uh,
0: Doing something to (laughs) that
1: baby. Bringing
0: that baby to life. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2015, the movie American Sniper came out. I saw it in the theater and I couldn't tell you a single detail about that movie except that it had a plastic doll being used as a baby and it was unbearably distracting, especially when Bradley Cooper, the senior, referencing, he sits there in the nursery and he holds the baby and he kind of just wiggles his thumb under the arm of the baby to get it to move. And that's definitely the energy we're feeling here with Dorothy and this baby. Anyway, so Dorothy's going full Cooper, and she proclaims to the girls that she's watching the baby while the parents are at the hospital post a water skiing accident. And it's funny because we don't really know these parents. We don't hear from them again. Uh, They're just neighbors, maybe. In all fairness, they do cut to footage directly looking at the baby, and he is real for that shot, but it's only once or twice in the
1: whole episode. Why don't they make fake babies like put some sand in there
0: okay so baby alive which is a doll that has um places in it where you add water so oh, okay. it has that baby aliveness movement kind it's of a like thing my
1: sleeping pillow
0: yes but that came out in the 70s so i don't know why they wouldn't have you at least that to have it Some movement because it's
1: the bag of water. Like we said
0: at the very end, when she's holding the baby, the feet are at her belly button, and then it's just protruding out from her. And if they had gotten something, even just a little something with uh, some movement, you get
1: you get get a gallon Ziploc. you (laughs) fill that with let's say spaghetti and meatballs. Perfect. You got a baby. Zip it up. Wrap it up in a blanket. You're done.
0: But I feel like if it had had some sort of fluidity to it, they would have more naturally supported the neck at the very least, or cradled it a little bit more. So. Yeah.
1: They gave it the uh, effort that the prop department put into it and the directors <laughs> put into a, they gave a thumbs up to that baby to... that weighs like cotton candy weight. One <laughs> cotton candy's weight worth of baby.
0: I would love to know what they actually use. Like did they use a doll to at least have the shape
1: or did they just Subway sandwich find
0: a really big like LA Times Sunday newspaper.
1: Oh yeah, they were And throw yeah. it in there like, "Oh, eh, whatever. And I can can confirm Uh, In 1986, that L.A. Times was a big, bad mother effer. Huge.
0: Selfish Blanche brings the focus back to herself as she hopes the baby doesn't make things a mess for her visiting sister. Rose continues to press Blanche as to why she hates Virginia. Now, Virginia did go to extremes if we are to believe what Blanche says about her, that she would bite herself to get in trouble because that's like psychopath stuff right there. These behaviors earned Blanche the nickname of The Bad Seed, which I really hope came from one of my all-time favorite films of the same name. A new favorite for you.
1: Truly. I uh, Yeah. It was one that I I avoided for a long time because it looked old and boring. It's in black and white. I couldn't have been more... uh, pleased with what happened in that movie
0: (laughs) Uh, more of a tease than a spoil it is funny that after mentioning the bad seed she then talks about uh, when she was electrocuted yes which also ties back into that movie but we're not gonna we're not gonna say how or why but it does reflect so it makes me think whoever wrote that part probably enjoyed that film and wanted to bring it into that scene This is another episode directed by Paul Bogart. He was also a supervising producer. I wonder if they had him do a few of the first episodes before deciding he wasn't a fit. The shots aren't quite as extreme as the last episode with him that I discussed, but there are definitely some noticeable close-ups and unusual angles that we won't see again on the show. Virginia finally arrives and is nothing but complimentary, leaving Blanche to be argumentative and defensive. Virginia begs for them to finally get some time together where they aren't arguing or bringing each other down, but Blanche can't help herself, talking trash about her sister losing weight and having saggy skin, her need for a facelift, her turkey waddle. Blanche can do nothing but be disparaging. It's a sad yet pretty real look at the brutality women face from one another when it comes to appearance and body shaming. Virginia is played by the late Sheree North. She had over 100 acting credits in her over 50-year career. While she had roles in iconic shows like Murder, She Wrote, Kojak, and Seinfeld, she also had a couple of roles that perhaps foreshadowed her Golden Girls appearance with spots on The Virginian and The Bob Hope Presents The Crystal Theater. Bob Hope comes into play later in the series. Hope (laughs) tease. We leave the sisters to join the ladies in Dorothy's mansion of a bedroom where they're dealing with the fussy baby. Rose is certain it has colic, a condition in which a healthy baby with no clear issues or symptoms is fussy for a long period of time. While there isn't a cure for colic, you can do things like try a pacifier, take the baby for a walk or a drive, and so on. Or you can do what Rose did, which was to mix up the old-school teething treatment of rubbing brandy on the gums of a teething baby as a cure for colic and just give them a whole bottle of liquor. Please do not actually do that. While that was something people thought helped back in the day, the rubbing alcohol in the gums, it's not recommended to give any amount of alcohol to a baby, so don't do it. But I do love Rose's face when she realizes that she was wrong to give her babies a bottle, or bottle, as Sophia says, of brandy. She's also pretty content with the fact that she had happy babies. You were colicky, weren't you?
1: Colic cocoa? Uh, Yeah, my my sister was colicky. I don't think I was. I had a lot of ear infections when I was a baby. Ooh, brag. I know. I was very sick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But not colicky.
1: I don't think so, no. I think I was a real... A real, a real pleasant little baby. My my sister, as I hear tell, uh, was a a colic nightmare.
0: Well, sisters, that's the topic of today. So there you
1: go. I I got some stories. (laughs) I really like having female friends, and Mm. uh, maybe that's. Oh, that might be because my sister was my first friend, right?
0: And I enjoy hanging out with dudes. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, like you had a brother.
0: Interesting. ah, Whoa. Beep boop boop. Hello, is this science? Hi,
1: is this my sister? You're my, you're my first best friend, and I love you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rose is then equally elated when playing with the baby wipes in the pop-up container. That's because it wasn't until the late 70s that wet wipes were first created and manufactured. By the 90s, they were everywhere. But before that, she mentions using cotton and fish ointment, which is exactly as it sounds. The ladies continue bonding over their shared and different experiences when it came to motherhood. Sophia shares a bit of an oh boy, but not in a judgmental way, but just a... Mm, an unconventional way, that her son Phil had breastfed until he was 12. She hyperbolically tells a tale of him even wanting to come home from school during lunch to do so. Which reminds me of a very interesting documentary on YouTube I watched several years back about some school-aged girls that were still breastfeeding. Me and my friends still reference it when we like something as it being sweeter than a million melons. As Dorothy paces with her log baby, Blanche comes in the room and seems deflated after her visit with her sister. They had a pleasant visit, so she's not quite sure what's going on. Later that evening, we join Blanche and Virginia at dinner, where Virginia is still trying to keep the peace between them. When prying about why Blanche still has such animosity towards her, Virginia confesses that she had stolen some clothes from her sister through the years, but that was it. Blanche feigns being shocked by the confession before sharing it wasn't the clothes that upset her, it was Tom. Tom was the boy Blanche was dating before she had to leave town. Even though it had only been two dates, she was smitten and therefore heartbroken when she returned home to find her sister was now dating her beloved Tom. Even when Virginia and Tom fell in love and got married, Blanche couldn't be happy for her sister. And even then, at dinner, while Virginia hopes that her sharing that Tom had been unfaithful in the marriage would lessen the anger, Blanche scoffs at her pain. Then, the truth behind Virginia's visit and suspicious kindness comes to light. She's dying. Blanche, hurt and shocked, uses her bullying as a coping skill to comment on Virginia's illness, causing her to look older. We go back to the house to find Dorothy in another square, humongous nightdress shirt thing while Sophia is going to town on some Fritos. If the only thing to come from having this show is to get bigger bags of Fritos created, I'm not talking about the party size of the scoops. I'm talking about a party size of chili cheese and a ridge. Then I've done my work. Do you hear me, frito Frito-Lays. Rose has been doing something that actually helps with colic, driving the baby around in what is apparently a car seat, even though it most closely resembles a baby doll playset. Then comes a classic Golden Girls interaction slash volley where Blanche is explaining that her sister is dying. Rose walks in the room and misunderstands and thinks that it's Blanche that's dying and she starts to panic. It's these quick jokes using each character's flaws that are a foundation to the show's longevity. Then comes a classic Golden Girls interaction slash folly where Blanche is explaining to Dorothy and Sophia that her sister is dying. Rose walks in the room late and misunderstands the whole thing and starts to panic that Blanche is actually the one that's dying. It's these quick jokes using each character's flaws that are a foundation to the show's longevity. It's then revealed that Virginia has come for a visit to ask Blanche for a kidney because of her renal failure. Now Blanche, who has done nothing for 40-something years but complain about her hatred for her sister, has to decide if she's willing to give up a part of her body to be a donor to her sister and save her life.
2: It's me. I'm Leslie Brock, executive director at Donate Life Northwest. We're the nonprofit organization in Oregon that provides education and outreach about the importance of organ, eye and tissue donation and transplant. And we also run the state organ donor registry for the state of Oregon. What are the most common misconceptions
0: that you experience, specifically with kidney donation, living donors? What are those misconceptions?
2: The biggest misconception out there right now about organ donation in general is that a doctor is not going to try to save your life if they know that you're a registered organ donor. So uh, that's something that we are constantly fighting. The doctors are there to save your life, and they don't even know if you're a registered donor when you're in the hospital and you've had a traumatic experience and they're doing everything they can to save your life. That's, I think, the biggest misconception about organ donation in general. One of the bigger misconceptions about living kidney donation and donating your kidney to someone else is that uh, you can only do it for somebody who you're related to by blood, You can actually donate a kidney to a complete stranger. They don't have to be related to you whatsoever. As long as you're a matching blood type and tissue type, you can still be a kidney donor for anybody.
0: I had not heard the conspiracy, if you will, about doctors. Is that something more recent in the last couple of years given the climate of America right now and the ideas of things like that? Or has that been around a while?
2: That's been around a while. Uh, That has been the number one thing that we hear from people when they're talking about their hesitancy to register as an organ donor. Is they're just afraid that when they get to the hospital, that the doctors are going to look at their driver's license and see that they've registered and they'll be like, oh, well, maybe we won't try so hard, but it's not true. They have no idea if you're a registered donor or not, and they will do everything to save your life. Um, If they can't save your life, they do not call the organ procurement organization until you have been declared brain dead.
0: Okay. Good to know. When it comes to kidney donation specifically, I looked into it. I've been interested in perhaps doing living donation. And I was really surprised to see you can live just fine with one kidney, that the healing process is surprisingly fast, that some places offer, if for some reason you need a kidney at a later time that kind of get prioritized on the list, things like that. Are there other things along those lines, kind of the pros and cons, if you will,
2: of living kidney donation? Living kidney donors, it's funny. People say that living kidney donors are some of the healthiest people on the planet. Because in order to be a living kidney donor, you have to go through very rigorous testing. Um, They ask you so many questions, both about your health history and psychologically, are you ready to do this? Um, they they go through all sorts of testing to make sure that you're as healthy as possible to donate a kidney. Um, everybody's born with two kidneys. You only need one, or at least most people are born with two kidneys. You only need one, uh, so we encourage everyone to consider being a living kidney donor because uh, right now in the United States there are over 100,000 people who are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant, and 80% of those people are waiting for a kidney. And there's only so many deceased donors out there. And so the best way for us to reduce that waiting list and waiting list times is to encourage more people to explore living kidney donation. Do
0: you know what that waiting time on average looks like for someone that's waiting for a, I'm sorry, I don't know the official term, when someone has passed and donates it, what is that timeline for someone that's waiting for that as opposed to a living donation?
2: Sure. So the waiting list times kind of vary by region, by state. It depends on where you live. Here in Oregon, the waiting time for a kidney is about three to five years for a deceased donor. And so that's why we try to encourage people to look for a living donor because, you know, this sooner you can get a living donation, number one, living kidney donation is actually better and more long lasting than a deceased donation usually. And then also if you donate a kidney from, if you receive a kidney from a living donor, that frees up another kidney that might come from a deceased donor for somebody else who's on the waiting list. And so if you're waiting for a kidney and you receive that living donor transplant, then the next, the next person who's on the waiting list might get that deceased donation sooner.
0: You saw in that episode, how Blanche jokes about how she's so petite. And of course that wouldn't fit her bigger sister. And also that in the end, she got a donation from a Mormon teacher who had a, you know, clean as a whistle kidney. What are you guys looking for in kind of an ideal candidate?
2: Sure, so I'm not a clinician either. I'm not a doctor. Um, so I can't really answer specifically. but uh, there there is a little bit of truth to, um, to to what she was saying that she she was too petite or right? I think she said her veins were too petite. Um, <laughs> so there is a little bit of truth to that. There is some size matching that has to go on. Um, and that's more specifically to other organs like hearts and lungs. Um, I think it does happen with kidneys occasionally, but I'm not positive. But, you know, you can't put, for example, adult sized lungs into a child who needs a transplant, you know, there's lots of other, lots of other factors that go into whether you can be a living donor. Um, If you were if you are a smoker. That might be a barrier. Um, if you, you know, if you are an alcoholic, that's probably going to be a problem. Um, if you are severely obese, that might be a problem. Um, so these are all questions that the transplant center will go over with you, and they'll go through a, a whole checklist of of all of your your health history. And all of your vitals, and your tissue type, and blood type, and things like that, and they'll determine whether or not um, you'll be a suitable living donor. Um, but like I said, you know, if you're, if you become, if you get through all of that, and you are a living donor, you are going to be one of the more healthy people around.
0: In going through that process, so let's say I've contacted you, I want to donate, and then I go through the basic testing and things like that, and then I get matched with someone. What does that Timeline kind of look like as far as downtime and feeling back to yourself from before the surgery?
2: Kidney surgery, living kidney donation, it's just like any other major surgery. I mean, it is a major surgery. Uh, they do it laparoscopically, which is great, but it's still going to take some time to recover. And um, the, I think the typical time is about two weeks off of work, is what you can expect. And some people recover very quickly, some people it takes a little bit longer. It just depends on the individual. Something that's good to know is that someone who is donating a kidney, the recipient's insurance pays for all of that, for the, the donation itself, for your surgery, all of that. The only thing that you have to cover is your time off of work. If you have to take a couple of weeks off of work, you need to be able to, you know, to, to deal with that. And also if there's any travel involved, like if you have to travel to another city and stay there for a few nights for the surgery, that's going to be on you as well. Um, but everything else is covered by the recipient's insurance.
0: When Blanche is asked to donate, she's in her 50s. Well, not not according to her. She's in her 40s, but she is in her 50s. Is there a more ideal age? Because obviously you're having downtime, you're having surgery, you you know, and you're donating an organ. So obviously the newer, the better. Is there kind of an ideal age range that people
2: should be looking at doing that? different transplant centers have different criteria for the age range for someone to be able to donate. Um, you, you've got to be an adult, um, over the age of 18 because you have to be able to make that decision as an adult. Um, but we have some people in our community who have donated a kidney in their early sixties. So, um, it just kind of depends. Um, there are people who have donated, and, you know, they, they may be 60 years old, but they have the kidney of a 30 year old. Just depends on how well you treat your, your own kidneys, I guess, throughout your life.
0: My dad and I had a deal I told him, cause he wasn't a donor. He wasn't listed as a donor. And I told him, I said, if you don't sign up to be a donor by the end of the year, I'm donating a kidney because I knew he didn't want to <laughs> do that. <laughs> he didn't want me to. So, so he is now signed up, but I do still consider it. And for me on a personal note, my hesitation comes from What if, you know, and it's very selfish to say, but the idea of what if something happens to me and Mm -hmm. I need one, and now I'm on that three to five year list, or what if my partner who maybe has health issues and potentially would need one down the line, not that you're guaranteed to be a match, but obviously you'd want to be able to do that. But as far as that hesitation of, well, what if something happens to me? Cause I'm sure that's a concern people have with doing that.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's it's a very valid concern. If you donate a kidney, um, you will get a a higher priority if some for some reason down the line uh, something happens and you end up needing a kidney transplant at some point. Um, So there is some prioritization made there um, for people who have been living donors in the past it's something that you have to think about. You have to take into account, you know, if you are going to be donating a kidney now, that means that you're not going to have another one to give to somebody else. If, if you're, you know, your husband or your son or, you know, your sister, ends up needing a kidney in the future. You know, you you have to kind of look at it from a, a bigger perspective that, you know, you're saving somebody's life and the hope is that there will be somebody out there who can help save your loved one's wife if that happens in the future. They're very valid concerns. And it's something that the transplant centers and the doctors will talk to you about and make sure that you're comfortable with because it is something that you need to consider.
0: And I'm sure it goes back to to the if you're donating a kidney, then you're already pretty darn healthy. So exactly the likelihood I did read somewhere, the recipient rate of people that donate that the need a kidney is really low.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: So if someone is hearing this information and is interested in at the very least learning more, if not donating, what's the best Mm -hmm. way to start? You know, I've, I've been Googling and there are so many organizations and so many places that we offer this and we have that
2: what's the best route to go? But you can contact your local transplant center and see if they have a living kidney donation program. Some do, some don't, most of them do. Uh, And check with them and see what the process is. If you have somebody specific in mind that you want to donate to, um, then you can talk to them about that. You find out where um, your friend, loved one, whoever is actually listed because they'll be listed as specific transplant center. You find out where they're listed at, and then you say, hey, I want to be tested to be uh, see if I'm a match to be a living donor to them. Um, if you want to do it altruistically um, and just donate to a stranger, then you just need to contact your local transplant centers. Um, there's lots of information online at Donate Life America's website, which is DonateLife.net. And then here locally in Portland, you can come to our website, DonateLifeNW.org, and we have lots of information on the website about living donation and who, to, who you can contact. I can tell you that in Oregon right now there are 745 people waiting for a kidney transplant that's on the waiting list.
0: Anyone out there listening that might be considering kidney donation is there anything else you'd like them to know?
2: Being a living donor is such a such a gratifying and amazing process and that you know people who have been a living donor and have donated a kidney Nine times out of 10, they say that they would do it again in a heartbeat. If they had two kidneys again, they would donate a second kidney again. Because just seeing the transformation in someone who is really sick, who's on dialysis, you know, spending hours every day hooked up to a machine, that's no way to live a life. And if you can give someone a kidney and they can go back to a normal life for, you know, they can have a nice long, healthy life. And you still have a nice, long, healthy life on your one kidney. It's a miracle and it's amazing. And I would just really encourage anybody who is interested to think about it.
0: Thanks again to Leslie Brock with Donate Life Northwest. If you're interested in learning more about kidney or other organ donation, please visit DonateLife.net. Leslie sent me additional information about last year's donations, saying that there were 50 living kidney donations and 160 deceased donations just in the Portland area. While the ladies grapple with the weight of Blanche's decision, they make their way to the kitchen to do some emotional snacking. No, not snacking, gorging. They bring out chicken, grapes, potatoes, carrots, celery, pie, and a mystery Tupperware of, I'm not sure, maybe potato salad or coleslaw. We get an old boy from Rose when she says that if Blanche took back her kidney after giving it to Virginia, she would be an Indian giver. This is a phrase that dates back to the 16th century when colonizers coming to the new world viewed the givings of the native people as gifts, where the natives saw it as part of an exchange. We aren't giving you food, we're giving you food, and you give us something in return a fair and reasonable expectation. Well, classic colonizers, they then created the term Indian giver to be used for someone that either expects something in return or someone that has given a gift and takes it back, all of which are pretty bad. So that's why we don't use that term anymore. Rose shares that she would give her kidney to her old dog Fluffy because he was such a wonderful, loving, and loyal pet. Dorothy wishes Stan had some of the traits that Fluffy had. Sophia lays it out flat. If you can't count on family, who the hell can you count on? Which is right, except Blanche brushes it off with, she's Italian. Blanche and Virginia's other sister, Charmaine, can't donate her kidney because her kidneys are attached to one another. The girls are able to bond over Charmaine's lifelong health mm, quirks, shall we say, and that she's always been kind of the difficult sister. The elephant in the room hovers as it's clear Blanche is racked with guilt over what to do. Virginia tries to relieve the guilt, saying that it would be okay if she didn't donate. In a classic Blanche move, when Virginia says that she would be just as unsure if the roles were reversed, Blanche is totally offended. I'm pretty sure she has a narcissistic personality disorder. While Virginia leaves and gives what may be the first and only real hug of their lives, she assures Blanche that she will always love her. We join the ladies in the kitchen, which, thanks to Paul's wide shots, we get another glance at the lobster pan that still hangs near the ceiling. The ladies discuss how they've all been overbearing when it comes to the baby. Blanche shares that she was up all night, but that she's decided to donate her kidney and to build a real relationship and sisterhood with Virginia, while of course still talking trash about her other sister. The log baby is finally headed home as Sophia talks about hating hospitals ever since her 98-year-old friend went to one with no health issues before dying in her sleep. A minor plot whoopsie, or perhaps it's just something Rose overcame, she shares that she has an equal dislike of hospitals because of the sick people. But in a few seasons, she'll be spending a lot of her time working in one as a candy striper and counselor. The ladies are elated as they were told by the log's parents that they can watch him in a month when they leave town. The excitement continues when Blanche prances through the front door with a huge smile on her face, wearing one of my favorite outfits. They're shocked she's home, as she was supposed to still be in Atlanta post-surgery. It turned out that Blanche's blood vessels were just too small, or petite. Luckily, Virginia's spot on the donor list went to the top just as a Mormon teacher's number came up. Virginia received a kidney in which the wildest thing that had passed through it was Ovaltine, a joke about the fact that the donor was Mormon. That's because members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints follow the word of wisdom. However, it's a bit unclear as to what exactly it forbids. Most LDS members abide by no alcohol. Additionally, tea and coffee are part of the word. Some people have found that since sodas have similar ingredients, they should also be included, hence why chocolate milk was as outlandish as it got for that donor. Of course, Blanche not only didn't have to donate a kidney, but she walked away with a date with the doctor for when he comes to Florida the following week. With only a minute and a half left in the episode, we get one last, oh boy, when Sophia responds to Rose's, wherever she goes, she finds a man, with, so do hookers. First off, it's sex workers now, Sophia. Secondly, yikes. In the end, the best part of everything—the house cleaning, the fighting, the stress—was that Blanche walked away with a healthy, growing adult relationship with her sister. That she feels sad that they lost all that time being nasty to each other, but she doesn't want to wallow in it. She's ready to celebrate this new chapter in both of their lives, and that she gets a second chance at having a family. We get an opening credit shot when Blanche proposes to go to a bar where they can pick up retired astronauts, and Dorothy's response is to pinch her arm. Rose finally comes up with a solution they can all get behind, and that I find to be the solution to most problems, enjoying some rocky road they have in the freezer. So the gals run to the kitchen. Not every relationship can be fixed with the idea of you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Some relationships just need honest communication and connection, like Blanche and Virginia. Some relationships, even though they are blood, are better being apart. That's why we have to make our family what it needs to be for us, so we can be there for them, no matter what, always being their sisters. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Sometimes the downside to loving something so ubiquitous as the Golden Girls is that you see the same merch all over the place. Well, that is far from the case for Etsy shop Green Terra Emporium. Using recycled fence boards, Tara, the shop's owner and creator, combines multiple media including paint, decoupage, even scrabble pieces and key hooks to create one-of-a-kind pieces that can bring some goldenness to any space. Visit etsy.com slash shop slash green Emporium to bring Tara's hilarious and awesome work into your home. You can also find a link to her shop on our website at alwaysbemysisters.com under golden goodies. If you create golden goodies, be sure to email me at alwaysbemysisters at gmail.com so I can get you a shout out. While we will be talking to my dear friend, Dr. Kelly Niles Yokum in a few episodes, she wanted to share her favorite Golden Girls memory. To have yours read on the show, send it in an email to alwaysbemysisters at gmail.com. Kelly says, I would love to watch the Golden Girls with all of my people, but I'd actually love to watch it with some of the Golden Girls themselves and get their takes on things. My favorite memory is about episode one of season three called Old Friends. I love this one because it's about something we all think about when it comes to aging, Alzheimer's, and it features Sophia who really gets this one right. It's a beautiful look at friendship in the context of a devastating disease. Also, the artist. All the girls fall for the artist. It's a great look into friendship and lust and connections. The Golden Girls was really groundbreaking for its time. They covered so many taboo topics that are now not so taboo, but we are still stuck in some aspects. We've not really come that far. The Transparency yeah. Great start. Rose continues to press Blance Blance. Rose continues to play <laughs> Yeah, why can't we use that for adults? Yeah. Be like, she is just a colicky
1: person. Well, let's bring it back. Always fussing. We should. Always crying. I am a We need to raise a survivor awareness. of adult colic. <laughs> That's basically what a baby is. It has no bones for a long time.
0: And you would have been more natural, you know, for the actors. It'd be more natural. (laughs) I am not a
1: father, by the way. I don't don't have children. I
0: love holding babies because they feel like spaghetti and meatball. And that would, I mean, what a fun prank that is. Yeah. Poop. Poop. I'm right here in front of the house in the vase. Surprise when you walk in the door.
1: Classic. And then she
0: falls over and breaks it.
1: (laughs) Cuts an artery and dies. (laughs) Rips. Um, That's my note.
0: (laughs) So they were noon as... Noon.
1: I think once you know, you really know what's happening in people's pants. Just like as a human, yeah. That you, I I would hope that that would dissuade anyone from sitting on any daddy's laps.
0: (laughs) Once you've gone through sex ed, yeah, you're too old for lap sitting. You know that really? I mean,
1: any, yeah, no, thank you. It's like my sleeping pillow. Yes, which has
0: (laughs) you do have a sleeping pillow with water, so it's like a baby alive. Ding dong, kidney conversation, was that Blanche walked away with a healthy, growing adult relationships. Ah, oh, ships. Ah, oh, ships. Oh, ships. <laughs> Not every relationship can be fixed with the idea of you don't know what you've got until it's gone. I wrote done in this like a freaking idiot. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my
2: sister.